0: In January, James Aitken told me, It doesn't matter what you think about ESG. The clamor will only increase, fund flows will accelerate, and we need to set our cynicism aside and be mindful of the consequences. It's going to be with us for a long time to come. Ever since, I've grown increasingly curious about the megatrend of sustainable investing. Climate change dominated the discussion at Davos a few weeks after, and social issues about the treatment of workers are front and center since the onset of COVID-19. This mini series, Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier, is my effort to learn alongside you through conversations with serious, passionate practitioners in the field. For the next month, you'll hear conversations twice a week in a familiar style and format, all focused on this important investment area. My guest on the first episode of Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier, is Wendy Cromwell, Vice Chair of Wellington Management and the Director of Sustainable Investment at the firm. She joined Wellington out of business school 25 years ago and has been there ever since. A year and a half ago, Wendy also became one of two asset managers on the 10-person board of the UN PRI, or United Nations Supported Principles for Responsible Investment. PRI is the world's leading proponent of responsible investment, canvassing 2,500 signatories globally across asset owners, asset managers, and service providers. Their mission is to understand the investment implications of ESG factors and support the incorporation of those factors globally. Our conversation discusses Wendy's path within Wellington, the lingo of sustainable investment, Market inefficiencies for an active manager in the space, implementation of sustainable investing across a large asset management firm, growth of interest in sustainable investing, integration of scientific climate research, rapidly rising interest and research in social considerations in companies, and developments on the come with carbon footprints, divestment, and regulation. Please enjoy my conversation with Wendy Cromwell in this first episode of Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier. Wendy, great to see you.
1: Hi, great to see you virtually, Ted.
0: (laughs) Well, this is our first in what's going to be a really interesting series on sustainable investing. There's a lot of great stuff to cover, but I want to start as I always do and really talk about your background and your path to being in the seat you occupy today.
1: Okay, great. Well, I have been in the asset management industry for almost 25 years now, and much of my career has been spent on the investment side and most recently leading our multi-asset business. And about two, two and a half years ago, in speaking with our CEO, we noticed a lot of sustainable investment content coming up from the bottom up with our investors and others at Wellington, including some from within my former team, where we were focused on impact investing. And we thought that we needed to knit all of that together and really put some strategy and resources behind it in a different way than we had already. And he asked me to lead this initiative because inherently sustainable investment crosses all asset classes. And because I had this Inherent interest based on the work we had done on impact investing in public markets. So that's been my evolution into the space.
0: Well, you know, I had this great conversation with Jean a while back, and she had such a fascinating background. You're going to have to just take me back into how you first got interested in investing in the first place.
1: I went to business school at Vanderbilt, and coming straight out of business school, I joined Wellington about a year after. And my entree into the field was actually on the client side. And on the client side, I joined in our institutional client services group, and one of the things that I originally observed was that we were, this was back in the mid-90s, we were organized more geographically, and I wrote a proposal at that time to organize more by client type because I thought if we really understood the problems that the clients, our clients have, that we'd be better able to put investments against them and come up with creative solutions to their problems. And the head of the group at the time really liked that. And based on the fact that I'd written that proposal, he allowed me to kind of pick what client type I wanted to focus on. And I focused on endowments and foundations. And that was really, I think I was drawn to them because of their progressive thinking on investment policy. And from there, that work with them and understanding investment policy considerations led to more work on investment policy and research and asset allocation and development of a multi asset philosophy and managing money and establishing a group within Wellington to do that. And then all leading to focusing on sustainable investment across asset classes. So none of it was intentional, but I think just following that interest level and getting involved and making opportunities where I could find them led to where I am in the market today. Well,
0: as we get started on this, there's just a lot of lingo that is probably common to you, but I think people who are just starting to pay more attention, you have ESG and impact and sustainable, and those different phrases that people throw around. Why don't you walk through what that common high-level lingo actually means?
1: I'm going to use the definitions that we use, but I think one of the things that you will observe throughout your whole series on sustainable investment is that it is a rapidly evolving space, which makes it a really exciting space because there's so much to explore. There's new research to do. There's new avenues to pursue. But it can also be a confusing space because people are using similar terms differently. And there can be some misperceptions. So I'll walk you through how we think about it. And sustainable investment for us is the umbrella term that is encompassing all of these various aspects of investing. Really, the space got its start in negative screens or exclusionary portfolios, where you're screening out something you don't want to invest in. and That still can play a role, but one of the observations I have is the most productive evolution in the space has been, instead of defining the opportunity set by what you don't want to invest in, thinking about what you do want to invest in and why. So this concept of exclusions was a little bit limiting in terms of the number of people and the types of investors who could get involved, because obviously many investors, asset owners, have a wide variety of beneficiaries that have had different experiences and have different preferences and thought processes. So they would spend a lot of time arguing about what they didn't want to invest in and ultimately go round and round in circles and not make progress. So that was a little bit of a limiting feature. Plus, it wasn't that motivating talking about let's invest in this universe, except for these things, without some rationale, wasn't that motivational, and it didn't express the investment outcome that you were seeking. Now, if you take those same people who've argued over and over again about didn't want to invest in, what we found is those same people can find much more alignment on what they do want to invest in. And so if I say to them, interested in investing in companies who are whose core goods and services are solving the world's most pressing problems, and therefore they've got these great growth trajectories, and we think that they're mispriced because they're not well understood, all of those people who have argued about what they didn't want to invest in can say, hey, that sounds like a really interesting idea. Let's follow that. Or if I say, are you interested in investing in companies with high relative return on capital that have best-in-class stewardship that compounds that capital over time, say, oh, tell me more about that. So instead of talking about what you're not going to invest in, talking about what you are going to invest in and why, I feel like that's been a really progressive and important evolution in the space. ESG integration. ESG, of course, refers to environmental, social, and governance considerations. I think sometimes there's a misperception that that needs to be values-based, in terms of your evaluation of those things. In our view, we're trying to understand companies holistically. And invariably, what they do in terms of their water efficiency is going to affect their operating cost, or how they treat their employees is going to affect their employee retention and therefore their cost. And so trying to understand companies holistically, including these characteristics, is really, really important to us to making investment decisions and having different insights. Alongside ESG integration, there's a concept that people refer to as engagement. And engagement really means meeting with companies, company management teams, sometimes policymakers, and sitting down with them and trying to understand their strategy, trying to perhaps in some cases, offer best practices that you've seen in other places, and influence that strategy for better outcomes. So that's something as an active manager that we do quite a bit of. I actually touched base with our team internally. When I touched base with them, I learned that we did 3,100 meetings with company management teams during the first nine weeks of quarantine, which was about mid-March in Boston. So it's been a great time to engage with companies and obviously understanding their strategy in this moment is really important. Moving on from there, a category of sustainable investment is also thematic investing, which is pretty self-explanatory. It's as it sounds, investing in a specific theme like climate change or water or gender lens or emerging markets development. And then I'll pause for a second on this concept of impact investing that really started in the private market space, but we've tried to translate it to public markets so that more people can have access, you can get more capital moving in this direction. We call it democratizing access to impact investing. But for us, what that means is investing in companies whose core goods and services are targeting one of these world's pressing problems. And we're doing that in a way that we think we can beat benchmarks because we think these companies are very good companies. (laughs) They're targeting world pressing problems, there's a need, and so therefore they can grow alongside that need And we also find them to be undercovered from a market standpoint and misunderstood because people aren't looking at the thesis through an impact lens.
0: How do you differentiate just on that last point between thematic and impact?
1: A lot of these concepts can intersect with each other, so they're not mutually exclusive. And certainly you would want your impact portfolio to have ESG integration would want your impact portfolio to include acknowledgement of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which is another form of investing, SDG investing. So they're not mutually exclusive necessarily, but they don't all, just because you're an SDG strategy, which means you're investing in one of these United Nations Sustainable Development Goals that they've defined a need to meet by 2030, doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing that with an impact orientation to it. So they can intersect, but they don't always.
0: There's always this phrase of doing well and doing good. You are, Wellington, an active manager. How do you think about that potential intersection of what matters more?
1: Well, I might switch your question up a little bit because the most common question that I get from clients is does sustainable investment add value, which is a version of what you're asking. And I often refer to that as a trick question, because that suggests that sustainable investment is monolithic and is one thing. And what we find is that there is this continuum, and dependent upon portfolio construction, investment philosophy, and process, you can have a sustainable investment strategy that is designed to be philanthropic or one that's designed to achieve marginally lower returns with higher impact, or ones like the ones that we strive to create that are what we call non-concessionary, meaning they're trying to beat benchmarks and philosophy led. That what that means is that by looking through a sustainable investment lens, we think that we can add more value. We think this is a unique perspective that leads to differentiated insights. And so therefore it's non-concessionary and we can beat benchmarks by doing so. So the reason it's a trick question is there isn't an answer to that. It depends on your portfolio construction, investment philosophy, and process.
0: All of trying to outperform is trying to find some competitive advantage. So what lens do you use to try to figure out how can you do this in a non-concessionary way?
1: Our portfolios at Wellington have what we believe is a credible and well-articulated investment philosophy and process across our entire platform. We think that this is the key to success and the key to adding value in client portfolios. And that investment philosophy statement has to answer three questions. What market inefficiencies do you see? Because inherently, if you're an active manager, you think that markets aren't efficient, that you can beat them. Why does that inefficiency exist? And how are you going to take advantage of that inefficiency? And we apply that same principle of investment philosophy and process to all of our strategies including those that have a sustainable investment lens and in many cases because sustainable investment is rapidly evolving and changing and misunderstood and the definitions aren't well known and the data isn't great we think that there's actually a lot of inefficiencies created in this rapid change that you can take advantage of as an investor and it's a great way to add value and in certain cases to have impact in other ways
0: So what are those inefficiencies?
1: There's tons. I'll give you two that are really focused on the ESG dimension. This concept that the market is overly focused on short-term growth. And we've actually found some support for that in data and research. There's a piece by the World Bank that shows that the average holding period for stocks globally has fallen from over three years back in the late 70s to less than one year today. And so there's been this real shift in market participants and their time horizon. And if you think about what that implies, that means that if you are an investor today and the average holding period is less than one year, why would you ask a company management team about long-term strategy? You don't really care what their long-term strategy is. You'd be more focused on the quarter. Why would you consider their proxies and trying to influence them that way? You may not even be around in terms of when the proxies are voted. So it really does change your behavior and it makes it a little bit more speculative in our view than investing. And at the same time, we noticed some research by some professors at Notre Dame and Rutgers where they did a study of US investment funds. And they looked at these funds and they divided them up based on their characteristics. And the two characteristics that they used to divide them up were active share, meaning how different are the holdings from the benchmark, And they called fund duration, which is unfortunate because that's usually a fixed income term, but they mean holding period. It's pretty clear in the paper. And whether you have a long holding period or short holding period. And what they found was those funds from 1994 that had high active share, they were very different from the benchmark and they had high fund duration. They had long holding periods. They significantly outperformed. So at the same time, you're witnessing this drop in the average holding period for stocks, you're actually also witnessing this potential to outperform by taking a different view. And so that's an inefficiency that we see in the market that some of our strategies try to take advantage of by extending their time horizon to 10 years, by investing in high relative return on capital companies, by looking at their stewardship philosophy and whether or not they're going to be able to sustain that high relative return on capital over time, by implementing good stewardship practices. So that would be one example.
0: In that, is the underlying thesis that the sustainable lens will increase in importance, and therefore it's getting underpriced currently in the market?
1: There's certainly an element of that. And I think we're actually starting to see that play out right now in this environment. There is also this thesis that good corporate stewardship really isn't well understood and that the potential to have good corporate stewardship can build loyalty and commitment. It can make your business stronger and more durable. It can lower your cost of capital, which allows you to reinvest in your business and sustain those profits over time, creating a flywheel effect. And that people just aren't as focused on that as they could be because of this short-termism. Those benefits tend to accrue in a compounded way over time. And if you're focused on Less than 11 months, what's going to happen? You're not focused on that.
0: What are some of the other inefficiencies?
1: So, I like to highlight these two kind of side by side because they're very different approaches. And I think they're both high integrity ways to think about ESG. And so, this actually gets at this concept of there, in my view, there isn't one way to adopt ESG integration, that there should be multiple ways and it should be intrinsic to your investment philosophy. So, I wanted to highlight another inefficiency, which is this idea that the third-party ratings providers are doing a great service, they're uncovering a lot of data, they're providing a lot of information to the marketplace, but that they're very inconsistent with each other. And I think that that will remain over time. People sometimes wonder if they'll converge, like the credit rating agencies have converged, but I don't think that's the case because they're fundamentally often measuring different things or placing emphasis on things in different ways. But there's this great slide that I like to use in client presentations that I'll describe to you that I stole from GPIF, the large Japanese asset owner, where they took two of their ratings providers and they plotted in a graph the ratings of each of the underlying companies they hold. And so if you compare those ratings and if those two ratings providers agreed 100%, you would see a 45-degree line from the bottom to the top right-hand side of the graph. And when you look at this graph, it really looks more like confetti at a party. There's dots everywhere, which is a very visual way of saying these vendors don't agree on their assessments of the companies. And so some people will look at that and they'll say, well, then ESG is nonsense. If these vendors don't agree that these companies are good or bad or whatever, then it's nonsense. And we, as an active manager, look at that and say, wow, what a market inefficiency. (laughs) There's all of this information out there. Some of it is backward looking because it's often informed by disclosures. And there's disagreement on what matters. We can apply our investment philosophy and process, meet with the companies, establish a more forward looking view, and try to take advantage of this perceived market inefficiency. And so, one of our investment teams, instead of focusing on those great stewardship companies that are already best in class, they focus on looking for those companies that are bad getting better, good getting great, and trying to influence that transition via the engagement process. Both of those portfolios are trying to beat, in this case, a benchmark, which is ACQUI. They're both global equity portfolios. Their holdings are very different. The way that they engage with companies are very different. What they're focused on are very different. But it's intrinsic to the investor's investment philosophy and skill. One investor has proven their skill over time investing in companies that compound value. The other, throughout his entire 30 plus year career, has been focused on inflection points. So it's playing to both of their strengths as investors. In my view, those are both equally high integrity investment ways of approaching ESG integration, but very different from one another.
0: Are there other inefficiencies that you point to?
1: I mentioned earlier that the asset team, about seven or eight years ago, we started to develop this concept of trying to translate best practices from private market impact investing to public market impact investing. And I do think that there is an inefficiency there in that this concept of impact investing hasn't really existed in public markets. So it's almost like the ultimate inefficiency. There's not a universe that's predefined of impact stocks that you can choose from, or impact bonds that you can choose from, you have to identify those yourself. And the act of doing that means that you're looking at these companies in a different way than the rest of the market. You're identifying impact companies, they haven't been pre-identified by someone else. So just analyzing whether they're valid for inclusion in the universe is the first step in the inefficiency because you're, thinking about them in a way that isn't common. And to me, good investing and good investors do this very well, right? They identify something, an area of the market that's changing or that's misunderstood, that isn't well-followed impact, I think fits that criteria. And then they look at companies or their potential investments through a different lens, again, impact fits that criteria as well. So on the equity side, identifying the universe was a major inefficiency. And then on the bond side, there's actually companies who are issuing green bonds or in some cases impact bonds, but in that universe to be pretty limited and of varying quality. And it doesn't really acknowledge some of the municipal securities that would qualify as impact securities or some of the corporates who are issuing bonds that aren't, quote, green bonds, but their business proposition in and of itself is an impact proposition in our minds. So it just helps you to kind of change the lens in the company and establish a different viewpoint. When I talk about these companies being misunderstood, sometimes people ask for examples. And so I go back in time and this example, I think would be pretty well understood today, but early on thinking about an emerging markets telecom company and the telecom analysts thinking about the voice and data prospects of that company and then us looking at that company more for its ability to enhance financial inclusion in emerging markets and so that allowed us to have a differentiated value on the company itself and that to some extent extends to today you've got mobile money and that's better understood in terms of financial inclusion but they've now moved into mobile credit and I think we think that that could be misunderstood and, and not well-valued. So you can see looking through a different lens can give you a different endpoint in terms of valuation.
0: So Wendy, as you start to pull out some of these examples, you have these you know, one set of companies that are great stewards and another companies that are improving, and then you have an example of a telecom company. If you take a step back, or right? Wellington's a big organization, how do you think about the lens of sustainable investing effectively across the whole firm?
1: So, to answer that question, I think it probably helps to have some context for who Wellington is as an organization. We're a large global asset manager. We manage about a trillion dollars in assets under management for clients across the world and across public securities primarily, but we also have a few private markets funds. And we're a privately held firm. And importantly to our business model, we have this orientation of no CIO, which means we don't have a single decision maker that everyone is feeding the insights to. Instead, we have this concept of having a community of investment boutiques where we have 50 plus investment boutiques and each of those boutiques has a decision maker that has a strongly held investment philosophy and process. And the reason I highlight that is we like the model because it attracts this type of investor who wants to own their outcomes, who have these strongly held investment beliefs. They want to align with their clients in terms of the outcomes that they're achieving and be held accountable. But it also means that those investment philosophies differ and the inefficiencies that they see differ. And so when I was talking about those two strategies, one team that was focused on these compounders and the other team that was focused on these improvers, if you will, we want that to be the case across all of our strategies where the ESG integration is genuine and credible and intrinsic to the investment philosophy, not something that's externally imposed. So if you think again about those two examples, if I were making the judgments for our firm top-down and i said okay everybody let's buy best in class compounders then that would totally accrue benefits to the clients of the first team and erode the value proposition of the second team and so then if i said no 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 never mind let's really focus on the bad companies and work on getting them better then that would accrue benefits to the second team the one that focuses on inflection points and erode the value of the team that focuses on compounders. And so the way, for me, the way that this is most sustainable, sustainable investment is most sustainable, is by having it intrinsic to the investment philosophy itself and owned by the investment team themselves, not externally imposed in some way. So from a criteria standpoint, that's our criteria, is that you need to have a genuine, incredible articulation of how you embed this into your investment philosophy, but we don't prescribe what that is. We do evaluate it. We give you feedback on your investment philosophy and process. And we do trade reviews where we see if your trading is consistent with your philosophy and process. We in fact have some investment coaching that's focused on your investment philosophy and process. So there's a lot of services around ensuring that is genuine and credible and well-articulated, but it's not prescribed.
0: So then how does the firm or your seat overseeing sustainable investing turn those inefficiencies and the reasons for them into how you're taking advantage of them and effectively, I guess, its products?
1: Yes. We have a central research team, our global industry research team. And in that, we have equity investors that we refer to as global industry analysts, GIAs, credit analysts. And ESG analysts, and they're all organized by sector. And one of the things that we do is we bring those investors together to triangulate on the value of a security. So, for example, what does that look like? When a company comes in to meet with us, we'll have all three of those perspectives often in the room. And we'll tell the CEO or the chair of the board or whomever we're meeting with that that's the case because we don't want them to feel caught off guard that they're going to get. Fixed income question and an equity roadshow, or something like that. So, we'll tell them you're going to have multiple perspectives in the room and set them up for that in advance. And the thing that we find that's helpful about that is so often these CEOs are on equity roadshows and they do have a message, a script, if you will. By adding in this kind of differentiated perspective, ESG and credit and equity all at the same time, you just get to more of a dialogue not a gotcha. It's just really trying to understand the company more holistically. And so we think there's a lot of power in that triangulation and that multidisciplinary approach. The other thing that I think really benefits us in this area is this concept of access. I mentioned before that we're a large asset manager. We manage a trillion dollars in assets under management. And this is terrific in terms of being able to get access to company managements. And so we think of that as a way we have to make sure that we're using that advantage to advantage our clients and to be able to add value. And then last but not least, there are other large managers out there. Of course, we happen to be one of the largest active managers. In our engagements with companies, we do say, instead of saying something like, we're going to own you whether we love you or hate you. And we're going to try to influence you via our proxy voting and our stewardship. We say, listen, we would really like to own you, but we're really only going to own you if we love you. And so why are you doing this and not that? We see this best practice over here. Why couldn't you implement it? And we find that to be a pretty productive conversation as well.
0: As you filter that into what you're offering to clients, I'd love to talk some about the trajectory of sustainable investing. And maybe the place to start is the interest in climate accelerating last year.
1: Usually people ask me what caused the interest in sustainable. And I say it's the interest in climate. But you asked a different question, which is why did climate interest accelerate last year? And I think there were a lot of studies that were scientifically rigorous and well-vetted that came out from groups that were deemed to be that really captured a lot of attention. I think that was one thing. I think there has been more regulatory focus, in, in particular in the EU, which has captured a lot of attention and demanded that asset owners think about this. And so the EU has been really fascinating because they have captured this belief that capital markets can be a force for change, which is, I believe, very, very true. And so then they have this concept of, If we target the asset owners, if we regulate the asset owners, and we say you have to consider ESG considerations as part of your fiduciary duty or some version of that, then the asset owners push the asset managers and the asset managers push the companies who then have to change their practices in some way, shape, or form to become more sustainable and resilient. And so we saw that unfolding through regulation and continuing to unfold through regulation throughout Europe, country by country, and also in the EU overall. And then we, of course, had a lot of physical climate risk events. And so for people who thought that climate change was too far away to matter, their base assumption started to erode when they started to see some of these implications and um, some of the data on having had the hottest 18 years, having been in this most recent time frame, or the wildfires in California and then 40 million acres burned in Australia. Their assumptions were challenged about this is 30 years away to, well, maybe this is going to impact a security that I own today or within my investment time horizon. And I need to think about that more.
0: Where have you seen interest across the spectrum of the types of investing that you described at the onset?
1: We see a lot of burgeoning interest in public securities impact investing. And I think it's because it's such a new field. And we were one of the first to offer a strategy in that area. There's been a ton of interest in that. There's also a lot of interest in our climate work. Another one of the inefficiencies that we observed in the space was this concept that a lot of people have been focused on climate. And within climate research, there's two main threads. One is transition risk, and the other is physical risk. And transition risk is focused on carbon and mitigating emissions and whether or not we'll see policies or a carbon dividend or a carbon tax or changes in consumer preferences. So when you think about transition risk, think all about carbon and who emits, which companies emit. But there's this other category and area of research that's physical risk, which is the result of those emissions over time. And it can affect any company's value. So how much more heat will we have and where will that be? How much more drought, hurricanes, wildfires, floods, access to water? And so when we looked out, we saw a lot of people were focused on transition risk, which is incredibly important. And not very many people were focused on physical risk. And so we decided to spend a lot of time, attention resources, partnering with a science organization, Woods Hole Research Center, to really understand those physical climate risks, the ones that I just mentioned, heat, drought, wildfire, hurricanes, floods, access to water, and their implications on capital markets. And this has been a hand-in-glove partnership where we're trying to bridge the divide between climate science and investing. I think I told you earlier, Ted, when we were chatting about this conversation we had early on with Phil Duffy, who's the head of research center. And I think it's just so emblematic of that divide. We sat down and said, we want to understand the implications of these physical climate risks and basis points. And Phil, who is brilliant, said, what's a basis point? And to us, that was just is so emblematic of the need for this partnership. You've got climate scientists who are analytically rigorous, and so thoughtful, but know very little about capital markets, and then investors who know a lot about capital markets and very little about RCP scenarios or climate science. So bringing those two together has been very impactful in an area of interest by our clients.
0: What's an example of something you found actionable in the markets or in your assessments with that research with Woods Hole?
1: Well, we... St- September of 2018. And I rattled off some of those variables that we wanted to think about. And there were six that we wanted to get through in the year 2019. The first one that we focused our attention on was heat. And the way that the partnership works is Woods Hole gives us a bunch of literature. They do a literature review and they say, here, Wellington, read all of this so that we have more of a basis for our questions. And then we get together and we say, these are the types of capital markets questions we think we want to answer and then based on those questions the scientists help us pick a metric that's going to inform our view so in the case of heat we picked a metric that was the combination of temperature and humidity called the heat index because of its impact on the human body being more consequential than just heat alone so i grew up in louisiana and i refer to my mother as having said it's hotter here in Louisiana than it is in Arizona because Arizona, it's a dry heat versus a wet heat. And she was actually right. There is a difference and it is more consequential when you combine the two. So once we pick that index, Woods Hole goes off and they create these granular grids that are maps of different geographical areas about how this index or how this metric changes time period over time period, geography by geography. And then we get together to review those maps. So the first map that we saw was one of the United States, and there's a lot of variability in the heat index in the United States that unfolds through time, including in the 2020 to 2029 decade. And so we were immediately drawn to this concept of, wow, there's a lot more change in this variable than we expected in a shorter time frame than we knew. I think the scientists knew that, the investors didn't know that. And for example, you look at Houston, and Houston will have two additional months of extreme heat days unfolding annually in the 2020 to 2029 period. And that seemed like a lot to our uninitiated eyes. So once we saw that, we said, wow, I wonder if this is priced into capital markets. And part of this is imagination, right? Where would this be priced in? What's an asset that has some sort of location orientation to it, that has a duration to it that's 10 years or longer? And we came up with the concept of municipal bonds. And so we overlaid that initial map, the very first map that we saw, with all of the US municipal bonds. And then we looked for evidence of mispricing. And what we found was municipal bonds that had the exact same financial characteristics. So yield, credit rating, maturity date, and very different client outcomes. And that was our aha moment that if it's not priced into municipal bonds, which are place-based, have a long duration to then relatively well traded, then it's probably not priced everywhere. And you give that information to investors and now we've got it in a desktop tool for our municipal bond team in particular and broader. And they don't have to own every municipal bond. If they've got two securities that have the same financial characteristics, why would you own the one that has the worst climate outcome? You wouldn't. And so that's how we started to use the information and we've expanded from there to REITs, to anything that has high levels of property, plant and equipment as evidence of them being more place-based to buy and maintain credit. We've done special projects on theme parks. So it really does on regional banks because of place-based lending, It really does translate more than you think to the security level within an investable time horizon.
0: And then what did you proceed to do after the heat study?
1: Oh, from heat, we went to drought. And that's actually kind of an interesting story, too, because we were originally slated to go to hurricanes. And you'll recall the California wildfires erupted while we were starting, while we were doing the heat work. Our wildfire work did not precede that, but our investors said, wow, you know, all of these wildfires are happening, can you focus your time and attention there next? And the order, heat and drought need to come before wildfire. So we moved from heat, we reprioritized our research agenda, moved from heat to drought, then to wildfire. And of course, that was helpful in thinking about California, thinking about the response to the California wildfires, also thinking about what happened in Australia in December.
0: So if this work with Woods Hole bridges the gap between climate science and investing in the capital markets, are you using the climate insights you're getting from this in any other way beyond your clients' portfolios?
1: You know, Ted, I'm really glad you asked that because it's a very important point. When you and I started talking about this climate research that we're doing, we talked about these two streams of climate research and climate risk, transition risk and physical risk. And of course, our Woods Hole partnership is focused on physical risk. And one of the reasons for that is when you start to study physical risk, one of the things that you quickly learn that I was not aware of as a lay person is no matter what we do with regard to emissions, in other words, there's these RCP scenarios, representative concentration pathways that represent different paths that we can take with regard to our own emission behavior. And if we stop emitting everything today as a society, or if we continue on the same path that we're on, that basically forms two bounds of reasonable outcomes we could expect with regard to our emissions behavior. And when you start to look at physical risk, one of the things that you learn is no matter which of those two paths that we're on or any of the paths in between, the physical manifestations of climate risk over the next 10 to 15 years will be the same and they're more consequential than I knew. And then maybe you know. And once your eyes are awakened to that, once you see that, you really feel compelled to share that insight more broadly because we need to adapt and we need companies to adapt. We need economies to adapt. We need societies to adapt. So one of the ways that we try to help with that process is by meeting with companies. And we worked with Woods Hole and another partner, CalPERS, the Large California Pension Plan, to create a document that we refer to as PROC. It stands for Physical Risks of Climate Change. And we use this document when we meet with companies, when we see that those companies have physical risks, at least based on the science that we're looking at. And when we've looked at their own company filings or the transcripts of their conference calls, et cetera, And we haven't seen them really acknowledging that physical risk in the public domain. So we want to sit down with them and say, here's what we see, look at this map, here's what it looks like. Are you aware? What are you doing? How are you thinking about adapting? And in some cases, they'll say, oh, yes, we're aware and we're thinking about it. And we'll ask them, do you need help? Do you need help thinking about this further? And that's what this physical risk of climate change consultation document is meant to do. I think it provides a pretty good step-by-step guide on how to think about and identify businesses physical attributes for example how demand for your products may change how your expenditures may change based on fixed asset impairment how your logistics and whether your supply chain will be disrupted whether your employees or your talent will be impacted whether there's an acquisition strategy that should be impacted by this analysis as well so it really does give some recommendations on how to think about it. We've already seen a couple of companies take us up on this, start to use this document to think through the physical risk that their businesses face and also to provide increased disclosure on that. And the reason we think that's so important, of course, is companies make up economies and economies make up society. So the first step for us all becoming more resilient is to figure out ways to adapt at the business level and increase awareness is meant to help on that process. The other ways that we try to contribute is by speaking at conferences and immediately before we went into quarantine, I think it was March 4th, I spoke at a climate change conference at HBS. Chris Golgajan, our director of climate research, has spoken at conferences at the UN or with the SP, trying to get that word out more broadly, and then Chris is also a very active participant committee member in the climate-related market risk subcommittee of the CFTC, and that's led by Bob Litterman, and that group is trying to proactively identify and assess financial risks of climate change and to really come up with recommendations that are data-driven and results-oriented on how to best mitigate those risks. So taking all that together, that's how we're trying to Do more than just benefit our clients' portfolios, but really try to reshape how the economy and how regulators are thinking about climate risks.
0: A lot of the focus on sustainable investing, certainly earlier this year, was on this climate issue. How have you thought about the S and the G? So let's just start with the social aspect of sustainable investing.
1: Yeah, if you think about the progression of ESG in the marketplace early days, when people started using this moniker, most investors would say something like, well, I've always always focused on G, which I think is generally true. Like Governance has been a focus of most investors. And so the E and the S were newer areas of emphasis across the marketplace. And then people really rapidly started to lean into understanding the E more based on the climate change imperative. And I think that will continue to be the case That dial really turned, if you think about a volume on a stereo, if you will, showing my age, that that dial went from 2 to 10 on climate in a very short period of time within 2019. Lots of intensity of interest that I think is going to have lasting repercussions in terms of pricing. But what's happened in the COVID crisis is S, which would have been relatively maybe underserved in aggregate, has really come to the fore and trying to understand these social practices, whether it's burden sharing or labor practices or safety and security or product quality and safety, or supply chains, that's all come to the fore. And so now I feel like you have this more holistic, maybe everyone isn't recognizing that they're more fully embracing all three letters, but that's what I see in the marketplace today is all three letters, Are coming more into the general investment dialogue in a way that's really productive.
0: How have you thought about the research angle on the social considerations?
1: I think engagement is imperative. And you learn a lot about a company, not only about their social practices, but about their culture and their leadership style in a crisis. And so their reaction to this crisis and what they're doing, I think informs our investors about whether or not those companies are actually aligned with their investment philosophy. And I said, we've done 3,100 meetings with company management teams during the first nine weeks of quarantine. All of those have been designed to really explore what are you doing in this environment? How is it impacting you? And sometimes there are these tricky questions because you're asking you, how has it impacted your cost structure? And the company's trying to figure out, do I say that it's become more expensive because I need to bake in social distancing in my plants or do I try to say that my margins are going to be the same and what is the right answer here and of course there isn't a right answer it's like what is the answer and then we'll try to figure out whether that's going to be sustainable over time so it's been a fascinating time to engage with companies and there have been a variety of responses across the board and some that we would deem to be Better from a long term value standpoint, and some that we would deem to be less high integrity.
0: How do you try to quantify what you're seeing in that research as a lens in the value of a business or the mispricing of a company?
1: We have this morning investment meeting every morning where all investors across the globe come together and it's a moderated discussion. It's not a dictated discussion, if you will. So anyone can submit, we call it submitting cards, even though now it's all and electronic it has been for years but in the old days in the 60s when we started this process you actually submitted a a physical card and say you know i want to comment on whichever company so you submit this and it kicks off this discussion and so one of the discussions this morning was about a company and how they are going to be impacted this company has actually benefited pretty greatly from the crisis just given its business model there's been a lot of demand for its services However, their cost structure has gone up too, and so trying to understand how that cost structure has gone up, how long that will be in place, how that changes the long-term value, while also assessing their benefits from increased demand and potentially competitors who are less able to move to this new model that we need to embrace. It's an imprecise science, you're an investor, you know how this is. You have to try to factor all of that in, into a DCF. And that's exactly what this analyst was doing this morning saying, I'm taking this much off because of increased costs but I'm adding this much because of demand for their services. And I actually think there's going to be some of the players who are competitors who are going to fall away. So I'm going to model them taking increased share. So it's all of those factors coming together. And this concept of the company being able to do the right thing by its employees and have good safety practices is baked into that sustainability over time, that they will be one of the companies that survives and that will be able to increase their share because of that survival.
0: As you sit in the intersection of a firm that's doing all this research on this area, and then obviously like, a large group of clients... What do you think this looks like in terms of activity over, say, the next five years?
1: On the climate side of things, I focused a lot so far in our discussion on physical climate risk. I alluded to transition risk as well. And I want to spend a little bit of time on that because one of the things that I see picking up across the globe, not so much in the U.S., but definitely in Australia and Canada and Europe, is this concept of carbon footprinting. And so carbon footprinting is the act of looking at what you hold as an asset owner in terms of securities and what the emissions of those securities are and trying to understand your own carbon footprint. And then once you have a handle on that, which is imprecise, of course, but once you have a handle on that baseline, the instinct for most investors is, how do I get that to be lower? And interestingly, I think that act in and of itself may facilitate a more rapid energy transition than we had been anticipating, because as you have more and more capital focusing on the largest emitters in their portfolio and wanting to reduce their emissions overall, you start to find that by making small changes, you can reduce your carbon footprint by 20 or 30 percent with a 50 basis point change in tracking risk. So it seems like a relatively small change in tracking risk or volatility versus some benchmark for a relatively big change in carbon that's usually attributable to just a few securities in the portfolio. And so one of the pieces of research that we've started to do is understanding, is there a cycle there where it starts to really affect the pricing of that, those securities? The other thing that I've seen more willingness to engage in more recently is in the divestment conversation. And there's been a real sea change here where for a time you heard more about engagement over divestment, less in- engage with these companies. And I don't think engagement is dead. Like, I think we're going to need to have some of these companies exist and transition just because of the amount of capital there. But I've just noticed, and I would say maybe in the last three or four months, more of a willingness for, Mainstream asset owners to consider the case of divestment over some period of time from the oil and gas industry in particular. And that's the change too. And I think that'll have a feedback loop into pricing that should be considered as well.
0: What do you see as the risks of this trend not playing out as it appears to be?
1: I will say that because it's a new and evolving space, people are tackling it differently. And in some cases, because there's so much interest from the client side of things, you will see some investors clamoring to meet that interest. And maybe you'll see what I would think, a less high integrity offering where you take a vendor score and you say, I'm gonna apply that to my process and I'm not gonna buy fours and fives. And that'll be my ESG version of whatever portfolio I manage. And the reason I think that's problematic is it's not intrinsic to the investment thesis to the investor himself or herself. And I just think that that whole process makes it less sustainable over time and less likely to generate good outcomes of any type over time because you're taking this external view that you did not generate, nor do you necessarily subscribe to, nor does it interact with your investment thesis and you're applying it. So when that doesn't work, how do you defend it? How do you stick with it? How do you articulate and add value over time or in any way, shape or form, financially or otherwise, if it hasn't been embedded and it isn't intrinsic? So I do worry about that, that there's been a lot of new concepts introduced and a lot of approaches and that they'll all, some will be higher integrity and some will be less high integrity. And, and that maybe some of those that don't work out, you'll start to see articles about, oh, this whole thing doesn't work because these that were labeled this way didn't play out as expected. But of course, investment strategies overall, some will do well and some will do poorly. So trying to paint the whole space with a monolithic lens, I think, would be a mistake.
0: In the structure of the organization that you described where you have 50 boutiques, how do you think about the sustainable investing lens on those boutiques that they're either by strategy or industry, they're just much less focused on some of the core concepts we've been talking about?
1: It's funny because a lot of this is good investment information. And so I think that when someone asked me that question, like maybe it doesn't apply to a boutique, I was like, okay, so capital allocation, which is a key governance principle, doesn't apply to our investment boutiques. Of course it does, right? Good capital allocation is good capital allocation or understanding the incentive structure. So all of the governance things, the incentive structure of a management team and whether they're incentivized in the way that you think is aligned with your investment thesis or not is really important. So the G's are pretty easy to get to. And then when you start to get to S, it's things like understanding the supply chain and if there's going to be supply chain disruptions or product quality and safety. I think you'd have a hard time finding any investor who thought that it was a really great idea to have poor product quality. Um, Whether you're a consumer company or not, that that's gonna be good for value over time. So a lot of these things are not really specialized. They're really intuitive concepts that I think can be applied across any boutique. The companies that you buy and the way that you apply the information, you know, I used that example before, like, do you buy the best in class or do you buy the the bad getting better? That can differ. But I think it's really hard to find a strategy where you're not including some of this information already in your investment process as a decision-making tool. Now, I'll say I personally find it trickier and harder to do in quant strategies or systematic strategies, which we have a big book of business that's in systematic strategies as well. Systematic investors are inherently empiricist. And so they're looking for evidence in backward-looking data of value creation. Now, trying to apply physical climate risk and look for historical evidence of physical climate risk generating or detracting value is going to be really hard, right? It's a forward-looking concept. So sometimes that can be hard to translate to a pure quant strategy, but there are other concepts that translate really well in terms of CEO compensation or, or thinking about other quant factors. But not all of them will be able to be applied as readily to, via a quant lens.
0: In addition to sort of that research with Wood's Hole, which is very focused on climate, there's a lot of the climate and maybe even some of the social considerations as it relates to labor that relates to eventually regulation what have you seen happening from the regulatory level on some of these major shifts?
1: Europe is very active and hard to come up with, I will, I will say. And some of it is by country and some of it is at the EU level. And we see similar activity in Australia, for example, and in Canada, less so in the US. You may see some state by state. We've seen some state by state. But this idea of embracing this information as a part of your fiduciary duty, not leaving it out of your investor toolkit is really, I think, coming to the fore across all of those. It takes different shape and form in different countries, but across all of those, you see some element of that coming into play, which I think really starts to get asset owners asking more precise questions. We're early days in some markets of this but once they see the variability in the answers to those questions, because they have the benefit of engaging with a lot of different managers, then their questions get richer and more nuanced over time. And again, it, it just pushes people on this dimension.
0: I'm going to circle back to where we started at the beginning when you were on the client side. So as you're now talking to a wide range of client types about all of these sustainability investing initiatives... Where are we in that trajectory of interest and who are the early adopters?
1: If you think back to school, you'll probably remember this concept of the product adoption curve. And I use this sometimes internally to describe what I see happening, but I apply that product adoption curve to sustainable investment practices and geographies. So, just as a quick reminder, the product adoption curve is like you have people who adopt new technologies or new products at different rates. So you, Ted, might have bought the iPhone one. And so you were an innovator or an early adopter. And I might have bought the iPhone 10 as my first iPhone. And so I'm in the late majority or the laggard category. And so applying that concept and of course, as you move through that curve and you have innovators and early adopters and early majority and late majority and laggards and so forth, you have more and more of the market In the product concept, you have more market share. In the sustainable investment concept, you have more more of the market adopting these practices. And so, what I see is that all geographies seem to be traveling along this curve, and then some countries started earlier. So, in in that innovator category, you really do see the Nordics and the Dutch. And in the early adopters, you see Europe and UK. And then early majority, you see Canada and Australia, which is really interesting given given their economies and the, the real asset base of their economies, how much they've embraced some of these concepts. And then you start to get into Japan, really starting to, from a top-down perspective, starting to embrace this to a greater extent, and even in some ways, China. I put the U.S., and maybe I do this provocatively, so I put the U.S. as a laggard in this category with a lot of evolution over the last year and a lot of momentum over the last year and this big inflection point. And certainly I'm talking about geographies as if everyone is the same and that's not the case, but it's in aggregate how I've observed the evolution and everybody kind of rapidly moving through that curve.
0: Well, Wendy, this is a wonderful start to this series and it's gonna be a lot of fun to continue to explore it. But before I let you go, I wanna ask you a few closing questions. What's your favorite hobby or activity? outside of work and family?
1: Well, for work and personally, prior to the COVID crisis, I travel a fair amount. And of course, when I'm traveling to prepare for those meetings, I read a lot of research and I look at the economic data and I read history. But one of my favorite practices and hobbies, I guess I would say, is to read a novel of a local author. And I've really come across some interesting authors and works via this practice. And I think it at least I may be overestimating it, but to me, it certainly adds to my enjoyment of the trip. And I think it adds to the richness of my understanding in some cases. And so I would highlight an author, a Chinese author, Yu Hua, who wrote Brothers, which is a wonderful novel and and another wonderful novel, To Live, which I think really has the way, the writing itself, I think is informative and the subject matter addressed is informative. Or The God of Small Things, in the case of India, also pretty informative. Or This Earth of Mankind, which is maybe more controversial about Indonesia. Just reading a novel in the voice of someone from that place, I find that very enjoyable.
0: Are there subtle lessons that you've taken from those types of novels?
1: Some of it is just the, the way that people communicate. And again, I may be over-extrapolating, but I find these parallels. In the God of Small Things, the language and the way that it's written, to me, is pretty intricate. And I find communication in India to have that same intricate nature to it, Those types of lessons, or the language in Brothers is pretty vivid. And so I find there's some parallels in the communication style in China as well. So those are the parallels.
0: What's your biggest pet peeve?
1: Now you have to remember that we have been in lockdown or quarantine <laughs> as a family. And I have to give my family credit. I've got two teenagers, a 17 year old and a 13 year old and my husband and everybody has been getting along great and everybody's been pitching in and doing the dishes and walking dogs, et cetera. So take this for what it is. It's a small pet peeve in this environment. But do you remember the far side cartoon where there's a guy and he's looking in the refrigerator and the refrigerator is full of butter. It just says butter, 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 butter. And he's looking over his shoulder and he says, "Hun, where's the butter? And so, <laughs> so that, I see that happening in my household with all three of my family members. I'm the designated looker. You know, it could be right in front of them, but it's mom, where are my socks kind of thing. And so it's a relatively small penalty for what has otherwise been a good time together.
0: How about your biggest investment pet peeve?
1: I'll speak to sustainable investment, particularly, where either people think they know what it is, but they haven't fully explored the space, or they try to make it rules-based. And so not handling the information with the rigor and robustness and nuance it deserves, I think, is an investment pet peeve of mine.
0: What do you do for self-growth?
1: I've been in the asset management industry, and in fact, I've been at Wellington for 24 years, and i feel like my whole my work is just self growth i feel like i get paid to learn and every day is fascinating and so asking tons of questions engaging with people who have different areas of expertise learning from our clients we mentioned all of this variation geography by geography and client type by client type there's just so so much richness in that that i feel like by getting up and going to work and exploring these topics it's my Favorite form of self growth.
0: What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: My parents were both educators. My father was a statistics and quantitative methods professor, and my mother was an early childhood educator. And most of her career, that was at an inner city school. So, this appreciation for learning definitely from both of them. And then from my dad, this concept of how important math and statistics can be to problem solving was definitely instilled in an early age, and also the fact that I am good at math and statistics, that wasn't a choice, which is actually a great gift to give to a child for them to believe that they're good at math and statistics. So that would be from him, and, and also this drive at like excellence along those dimensions. And then from my mom, because of her work in these inner city schools, this incredible broad mind of understanding different perspectives and different backgrounds, and just having a real empathy for all of that and the value of it. And so if you bring those two kind of learnings together, I think that's really informed who I am as both an investor and a person.
0: All right, Wendy, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life?
1: Years ago, our former head of investment research, Bill Perlmutter said something to me that really stuck with me. I was impressing upon him my view on something. I don't even remember what the topic was. And he said to me, well, you know, Wendy, the truth is always somewhere in the middle. And of course, I was really annoyed with him at the time because clearly my truth was the right truth. And and why didn't he just take my perspective? But over time, the wisdom of that statement has really grown on me. And what he really meant by that is, you know, no one person sees the whole picture. Everybody has pieces of the picture. So no one person is 100% right or 100% wrong. There are grains of truth in everyone's perspective. So, looking for even the 1% grain of truth in what the other person is saying can be really productive. And that's where the truth lies, is in the middle, somewhere in the middle. And if you think about that, it's really very wise and can be applied to so many aspects of life. Of course, it can be applied to investing, looking for that 1%. It can be applied to your dialogue with regard to politics today. It can be applied to the way that you receive feedback from your colleagues. It can be applied to your negotiations with your teenagers. And so I'm forever grateful for him for saying that because it has made such an impression on me.
0: Wonderful. Well, Wendy, thanks so much for taking the time.
1: Thank you, Ted. A
0: pleasure. My special thanks go out to Wellington Management for sponsoring this miniseries, Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier. Wellington Management serves as an asset manager and trusted advisor to clients representing more than $1 trillion in assets worldwide. Wellington has explored long-term sustainability issues since the 1970s and continues this practice today through internal research, engagement, and its innovative climate research initiative with top-ranked think tank Woods Hole Research Center. Wellington's investors strive to assess investments holistically through the triangulation of insights across equity, fixed income, and ESG research. The firm's sustainable investing practice also features market-leading impact, stewardship, and climate capabilities. Please check out wellington.com to learn more about the firm's approach and commitment to sustainable investing.